Um, I'm actually going to read through the whole, the whole thing we're reading today. We're reading from ver- chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. Okay, so I'm going to start that out. It says, The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. The town of Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and Caleb drove out the people living there who were descendants of the three sons of Anak. So the tribe of Benjamin, however, failed to drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. So to this day, the Jebusites live in Jerusalem among the people of Benjamin. The descendants of Joseph attacked the town of Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent men to scout out Bethel, formerly known as Luz. They confronted a man coming out of the town and said to him, show us a way into the town and we will have mercy on you. So he showed them a way in, and they killed everyone in the town except that man and his family. Later, that man moved to the land of the Hittites, where he built a town. He named it Luz, which is its name to this day. The tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tanakh, Dor, Iblim, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them out completely out of the land. The tribe of Ephraim, I'm in verse 29, failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, so the Canaanites continued to live there among them. The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron and Nahalal, so the Canaanites continued to live among them. But the Canaanites were forced to work as slaves for the people of Zebulun. The tribe of Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko, Sidon, Alab, Akzib, Helba, Aphek, and Rehab. Instead, the people of Asher moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land, for they failed to drive them out. Likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. Instead, they moved in among the Canaanites who controlled the land. Nevertheless, the people of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were forced to work as slaves for the people of Naphtali. As for the tribe of Dan, the Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down into the plains. The Amorites were determined to stay in Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shaalbim, but when the descendants of Joseph became stronger, they forced the Amorites to work as slaves. The boundary of the Amorites ran from Scorpion Pass to Sela and continued upward from there, in Judges 2, 1-5. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Balkum and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with them. With you, sorry. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they called the place Bacham, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Sorry, it's not a cheery message, is it? <laughs> you know, in the NLT version, it just says there, Israel fails to conquer the land. And you're like, well, great. Why do we want to read this? And I'm going to tell you why we want to read this. So verse 19, when he's starting out there, basically it says, they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. So you see there, the people of Judah, um, basically have an, they have a good excuse, right? They have a good excuse. We couldn't drive them out. They got chariots. We don't. And I was looking up a bit of archaeological evidence. The Israelites at this time did not have the use of metal tools. They did not have 
bronze and copper and iron and these types of things, but the, the people living there did. So you could see like the detriment they'd be at, right? It's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. You guys, you're not going to win, are you? Okay. So they have an excuse there, but they fail to remember that God, right? God doesn't matter. doesn't matter about chariots with God, does it? So it says in verse 20, the town of Hebron was given to Caleb. So now you see the shining light here. I mean, we saw a lot of this person, they failed, and this tribe failed, and they didn't drive them out, and they moved in with them, and all this. You see Caleb. The town of Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had promised. So this was a promise because Caleb was, um, well, he was one of the first 12 guys that went in to spy out the land, if you remember. Joseph, I'm oh, sorry, um, Joshua, Caleb, and 10 other guys. They came back after spying out the land, bringing back some seriously nice fruit. I mean, grapes so big, bunches of good, they had to carry it between a few people, right? That's a lot of grapes, right? You can see how prosperous the land was. They came back and said, let's go take it. God said, we can have it. And the other 10 said, no, 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 we don't want to do this. You guys remember where that ended them up? 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? But God promised those two, Joshua and Caleb, that they would see the land, and they're the only ones that made it. (laughs) Joshua and Caleb are the only ones of the original group of Israelites that entered the land. Moses didn't even enter the land. Moses died on the other side because he disobeyed the Lord. You know, he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. Well, I'll just give you a few examples here. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 24, it says this, but my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. He has remained loyal to me, so I will bring him into the land he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. Joshua chapter 14, verse 9 says, so that day Moses solemnly promised me the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your grant of land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly follow the Lord my God. Joshua fifteen fourteen says, Caleb drove out three groups of Anakites. The Anakites were giants. This is one of the tribes that like um, Goliath would come from, the Anakites. And Goliath, by standards, was a small giant. If you read on in the Old Testament, it says well, his brother was so big, the, the head of his spear was weighed 75 pounds. 75 pounds is something like 35 kg. That's a pretty heavy thing, right? Can any of you just pick up 35 kg on the end of a pole and throw it? I can't. <laughs> you know? So these are the people Caleb wiped out. Caleb. It didn't say the tribe of anybody. Caleb and his little family. The descendants of Sheshai, Ahiman, and Tamai, the sons of Anak. They were all giants. This was giant tribes. So he went and wiped out his family. Remember, Caleb definitely had one daughter. So his family rode up there, and they wiped out tribes of giants. Whereas tribes of, if you look at the numbers of the Israelites, we're talking tribes of Naphtali, Zebulun, Asher, Dan, Judah, Joseph, Manasseh. They're tribes of hundreds of thousands of people. And they couldn't drive out the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Hittites. But Caleb could drive them out. We're going to see why. He's able to drive out these giants because it's something he actually intended to do when he was 40 years old. When he spied out the land and came back, he was 40. You know how old he is when he gets into the land? Finally, 85. Caleb, at 85, drove out the giants like he was supposed to. 
because he purposed in his heart to do that. I know we could turn this around and say, oh, you know, if you really want something and desire it, you can really go a long way. You can accomplish great things. Yeah, that's true. You could do that. But you know how you could do it better? With the Lord. It's not about how much you want it. It's about what God says. God said he was going to give it to him. Caleb said, I take you at your word, and I'm going to do exactly what you said was going to happen. And that's what happened. Caleb did it. But we can say, oh, Caleb did it. But all Caleb did, like Joseph, if you remember the story of Joseph, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself, right? It's about how, how committed are we to Christ? That's really what it's about. So Caleb, at 85, goes with his family. <laughs> it's like me and my wife running up there with my five kids and taking our tribes of giants. I mean, probably not going to happen, <laughs> I'm a little guy. I'm hoping Caleb was bigger. <laughs> you know? But then you have Judah, just in verse 19 and stuff. And, and at this point, Simeon is kind of like meshed in with that tribe. So we got hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people can't drive out a, another people in the plains who had iron chariots. It's because they probably didn't wholeheartedly believe the Lord. Never says that about these people, does it? It never says they wholeheartedly followed the Lord. It never says that, you know, they have a different attitude. But that was said about Caleb. So I just want to paint that picture here. Just keep looking at that. <clears throat> we'll move on. Tribe of Benjamin failed to drive out the Jebusites. So what did they do? They let them live in Jerusalem with them, right? So I'm, I'm trying to paint the picture here. So let's look at... These people groups, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, all these different people groups, let's look at them as sin. Sin in your life. Okay? And let's look at all the different tribes as you, us, myself, you know? We're those people. And I'm not trying to say that we're replacing Israel. I'm just saying as an example. We're drawing a picture here. You can look at this scripture and just say, this is what it says. That's exactly what happened. That's it. The Lord is trying to tell us something here as well. He's not just giving us a history lesson, okay? So you see the tribe of Benjamin, or us, Juan, failed to drive out the sin who was living in his life, right? So to this day, the sin living in my life is still there because I have failed to drive it out, okay? Let's look at the next one. The descendants of Joseph, again, Juan, I attacked this town, right? This is a little bit different. And the Lord was with, it says the Lord was with them, Joseph. You know why the Lord was with the people of Joseph? Because Joseph was with God, right? Listen to the stories. It's not God is with us, we're with him. <laughs> you know, God's not saying, hey man, whatever you want, I'm with you. No, no, God, whatever you want, I'm with you. That's really, we need to look at it, we need to change our perspective, we need to change our perspective. So it said, they sent men to scout out Bethel, right? Now, if you remember, this has happened before, right? In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, they sent men to scout out Jericho, right? And they found Rahab, remember? She hid the spies, and they said, hey, if you keep this a secret, we're going to run this town pretty soon. And it's true, they were, right? And what happened? They said, we'll protect you and anybody in this apartment, in this flat, if they're outside, they're dead. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Only the people inside of Rahab's little house survived that attack. 
from the Israelites, and they took over Jericho. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 2, they did the same thing with the town of Ai, right? They went, they scouted it out, they went to fight, but there was sin in the camp, right? Achan was hiding something. He stole some gold and some clothes. And what happened? The Israelites were repelled. And Joshua was like, what? How can this happen? And the Lord told him, hey, you got sin in the camp. He's like, we do. What is going on here? They found it. And then they went and took over AI like they were supposed to. Right? So what you see is they came up with a plan. So they, they, they have a plan that they kind of use often. Third time they're using it. Let's go scout it out. We'll figure the thing out. And that's wise. Is it not wise to count the cost before you build? Is it not wise to plan ahead a little bit? Right? But you don't want to put all your trust in the plan. That's where, as humans, I think that's where we fail. I've made a plan, Lord, this is it. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Not necessarily. I've made so many plans, and they have come crumbling down so many times. If you guys are laughing, I think you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Right? But God does give us tools. Do you think the Israelites took over all these places without tools? Sometimes they did. Sometimes God did it. He wiped the people out. They just walked on like, oh, that's nice. I'll have that put it in their pocket. You know what I mean? Like, that's what happens sometimes. God said, just go in there and take the plunder. I've already, I've already destroyed everything. So verse 24 says, they confronted a man coming out of the town and said to him, show us a way into the town and we will have mercy on you. Here's why they had to scout out this town. There were no discernible ways in. Does that make sense? Normally you have a building or a town. There's a big, a big drawbridge or gates in the wall, right? Not this town. The way in was hidden which is interesting. So they found a guy coming out, and they grabbed him. How the heck did you get out? <laughs> you know, they asked him. And you know what he did? I think he saw something in them. He, said, he thought, well, well, you know what? If these, these guys, they're going to take it. So it says he showed them a way in. They killed everyone in the town except that man and his family. They were true to their word. Show us a way in. We will spare you and your family. It says, later, that man moved to the land of the Hittites, where he built a town. He named it Luz, and which is its name to this day. I, when I first read that, I thought, why are you telling me this, right? What, what's the difference where this guy went to live afterwards? And here's the reason. I don't know if you guys have heard of a, another Calvary Chapel pastor named John Corson. He's in the States on the West Coast. He made a very interesting point about these two verses. His point was this. This man that was coming out of Bethel, he came into contact with God's mercy. Have any of you come into contact with God's mercy? I'd I'd say you have if you're sitting here today, right? You have come into contact with God's mercy. The difference is that he immediately left coming into contact with God's mercy and went, and instead of staying there and changing his life, he immediately left and went to set up his old life again. Do you see that? Later, the man moved to the land of Hittites where he built a town. He named it Luz. And it says here, the town of Bethel was formerly known as Luz, which which is its name to this day. And he set up his old life again. He went back to his sin. That's why that was in there. That's why that's important. Continuing on, the tribe of Manasseh, they failed to drive out the people because the, 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 the Canaanites or the sin was determined to stay. It says that eventually they, they grew stronger and they forced them to work as their slaves, right? Then you look at the tribe of Ephraim. They failed to drive out the Canaanites. So the Canaanites continued to live there. 
here's something that's interesting about this verse, verse 29. In 1 Kings 9.16, you read about this. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer, killing the Canaanite population and burning it down. He gave the city to his daughter as a wedding gift when she married Solomon. You know what that tells me? There were no Israelites left there. They had been run out. So this is many, many years later, obviously in the time of Solomon. If Pharaoh comes in, destroys the town, kills every Canaanite, it says he captured it and burnt it down. No Israelites were left there. They were supposed to be there. They were the tribe of Ephraim. It says they failed to drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Later on in 1 Kings, it says, so Solomon rebuilt the city of Gezer. You know what that tells me? Those Israelites tried to live with their sin, right? It says right there. They continued to live there among them. And what did the sin do? It took over. Sin took over. Remember what the, the, the parallel I'm making here. The Hittites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, all these people groups, the Amorites, that is sin, making a parallel, okay? The tribe of Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Hit, Kitron and Nahalal and says, so the Canaanites continued to live among them, but they were forced to work as slaves. This is one thing I've realized over the years. You cannot make your sin work for you <laughs> as much as you might try. As much as you might try. I can give you personal examples in my life of me trying to make sin work for me, and eventually it just took over more. Because me work, letting it work for me is me feeding it. Is that the one thing we want to do is feed the sin in our life? No, we want to feed the spirit in our life, don't we? So verse 31, tribe of Asher, they failed to drive them out. Listen to this one, verse 32. Instead, the people of Asher moved in with them. They just moved in with their sin. Hey, you know, we can't make this work. It's too hard. We'll just, we'll just live with it. <laughs> right? They failed to drive them out. Likewise, verse 33, the tribe of Naphtali failed to drive out the residents. You know? And they forced them to work as slaves. As for the tribe of Dan, listen to this. The Amorites forced them back into the hill country. They didn't even let them in, man. They were too strong. Too strong. The Amorites were determined to stay. But eventually, the descendants of Joseph became stronger. They forced the Amorites to work as slaves. You know, look at the different stages. I wrote this down. I wrote this down here. One thing is this. I don't know where the sinful behavior in the Israelite community started. I don't know where it started. But you notice that it permeates every single tribe, doesn't it? Is there one tribe that stands out and says, they were obedient? Any tribe? Any of them. None. Not one. Not even Joseph, who was split into Manasseh and Ephraim. Not one tribe wholeheartedly sought the Lord. Not one. I don't know where the sin started, but that's the way it works in our lives, doesn't it? But unfortunately, sin in our individual life affects our whole family. Do you guys realize that? If you're messing around, everybody else in your family is going to suffer too. Eventually. Maybe not right away. Eventually, it'll su they'll suffer. You know, or they might fall subject to the same sin because they've seen it in you. <clears throat> and then you hear about this. So there's a couple of things. So if you look at verse 29 and 30, 
the stages of not driving sin out of your life, right? Like the Israelites, they didn't drive out the descendants. They were not obedient. It said that in chapter two, which we're going to look at. They were not obedient. And you might think, well, that's not fair. Those people already lived there. Why are they going to drive them out? That's not right. But the thing it is, it is right. God has given every single person in the world, past, present, and future, a chance to get to know him. And it says, if you, even if none of us say a word, even the rocks will cry out. It'll come out of the mouths of babies, it says, to glorify the Lord, right? So if that's the case, and those people knew they should repent and walk away from their evil doing, and I'm saying their evil doing, they used to sacrifice their children to their gods. It says they made them pass through the fire, right? There was wars. There was everything that happens today was happening then, happening then. Not just violence, you know, sexual immorality. All, everything that's happening today was happening then. This is not new stuff, folks. I mean, you read about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was happening then. Everything that's happening in the world is not new. Might be new to us. But it's not new to God. It's been happening. Remember the flood? Why would God wipe out a whole world and just let eight people survive? Because it was worse than it is now. So this is what happens. Verses 29 and 30, it says, you let sin stick around in your life, you know. And verses 28, 30, 33, and 35, sometimes you try to make it your slave. I'm going to make this work for me. Okay, I'll give you an example. I was, I'm not going to say I'm not still, but I had a problem with anger in my life. I grew up in a house, I grew up in New York City, not much different to here. I'll be honest with you. You might, might be saying, oh, New York is so fantastic. It's because you watch too much TV. <laughs> New York is not fantastic. New York is rough and tough. Okay? And I know the same goes for Birmingham, London. All cities are rough and tough. There's no nice, beautiful, kind, peaceful city. That's a lie. <laughs> I've lived in a lot of them. I lived in Philadelphia as well. That was even rougher. <laughs> Right? So anyways, I grew up in a household with a mom and a dad, but my dad did not really take care of us. There was abuse in the family. My mom was a believer. My dad is not. My mom is still a believer. My dad is still not a believer. My dad left us numerous times. You know, we'd be fending for ourselves. I come, I'm one of seven. I have five brothers and a sister. I'm the oldest of seven. So my mom was always trying to raise her seven kids mostly by herself in New York, right? So I, I wasn't super happy. <laughs> Seven kids, food is tight. Sometimes there's no electricity. Sometimes there's no water. Sometimes there's no heat, you know, right? But I was angry. I'm the oldest of seven. I was angry. I was mostly angry at my dad because he didn't take care of us like he was supposed to, right? At least in my mind, like he was supposed to. But then I started to use that anger in my favor. So I started playing sports. And I'll tell you what, anger takes you a long way in sports. Seriously. Makes you jump higher, run faster, all that stuff. It's like a drug, right? And when you start doing that, then you need it more and more. I played American football, which is big crush people sport. You know, anger is very helpful in that. <laughs> So I played American football, and I excelled in American football. I had scholarships to go to university for playing American football. You might look at me now and say, you're tiny, dude. 
I've seen those American football players. They're humongous. That's why I just went like between their legs and I was running. I was a running back. I did a lot of running. If you, if you can imagine, I did a lot of running. I didn't want to get crushed. But that actually, I excelled at that. And I actually did a lot of hitting as well. I was kind of ruthless in, in the physical part of the game. I also played basketball. And my brothers and I, we, some of my brothers have played semi-pro basketball. We were all good athletes, but we all employed our anger to our favor. And you know what happened? As I used my anger more, and I said, coach, would be like, we need to take that guy out. Like, don't worry, coach, I'll take him out. I got enough anger for everybody, you know? And I would take the guy out. And the coach would be like, Toro, yeah, coach, what's up? Oh, you didn't have to smash him that hard. Well, you said take him out. <laughs> I don't understand the problem, <laughs> right? You broke his arm. Not my problem. <laughs> you know? But anyways, that actually got me pretty far in athletics, but it didn't get me very far in life. The problem was I excelled on the football field. I excelled on the basketball court. I excelled on the baseball diamond because of anger. And like I said, it, when you, you really start to get that adrenaline pump, and you get angry, you get stronger. You go faster. You jump higher. You do all these amazing things. And then you go home, and it's, I can't live like that. But I did live like that. I was very angry. Ask my wife. <laughs> when we first got married, it was rough. Because I was a jerk, and I was very angry. And then I realized I wasn't just angry at my dad. I would be angry at myself because I knew how I should live because my mom did her job. My mom taught me exactly how I should live as a believer in Jesus Christ. And I wasn't, I was, I wasn't up to snuff, man. I wasn't doing it. Right? So I'd be angry at myself. I'd blame it on my dad, but I really hated myself. Right? But that was a sin in my life. I tried to make it my slave. Well, it didn't work. It started taking over. If you look at verses 32 and 33, you try to coexist with your sin. You know, we can, we can do this together. I, I, you know, we, I can make this work. But you can't. If you look at verse 34, you know what happens? If you try to let sin, st if you let sin stick around in your life, if you try to make it your slave, if you try to coexist with it, what eventually happens is what happened in verse 34. The Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down into the plains. Your sin takes over. Your sin eventually rules your life. This is what happens. Okay? I'm not telling you anything new. Rob can tell you this. Joni can tell you this. Anybody can tell you this. You cannot live with your sin. The Bible tells us, it uses, I forget, in um, some of the older versions of the Bible or translations, it'll say the word mortify. You guys ever heard that word? Mortify the flesh. You ever heard that phrase? You know what that means? If you look up the word mortify in the dictionary, it says to subdue the body or its needs and desires by self-denial or discipline. It says to subjugate the body or its passions by abstinence, aesthetic discipline, or self-inflicted suffering. But when the word comes, if you look at the actual word, the root of the word, the word mort means death. Okay? So if you were to mortify, like in the original Latin, you are to kill and subdue. If, if it's if in the late Middle English, it says the sense of the word is to put to death, deaden, and subdue by self-denial. That's what we're supposed to do to, to sin in our life. We're supposed to kill it. 
just like the Israelites were supposed to do to the sinful people living in the land, who had hundreds and hundreds of years of living on that land, plenty of time to repent and know about God, which they had heard about God. They were prophets, but they refused. So then God said, similar to the time of Noah, well, if you don't repent, I'm going to have to clean the land. And the Israelites were supposed to be his instrument at that point to clean the land. Right? To purify the land again. But the Israelites fell short because they started playing with sin too. And the, and, and the Lord told them, says, I'll, I'll show you why. Psalm 106, verses 34 to 39. Israel failed to destroy the nations in the land as the Lord had commanded them. Instead, they mingled among the pagans and adopted their evil customs. They worshipped their idols, which led to their downfall. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, by sacrificing them to the idols of Canaan. They polluted the land with murder. They defiled themselves by their evil deeds, and their love of idols was adultery in the Lord's sight. That's what happens. They allowed themselves to be taken in. <clears throat> so then moving forward to Judges chapter 2. It ends, chapter 1 ends with the boundary of the Amorites ran from Scorpion Pass to Sela and continued upward from there. It's just showing these guys, they just, they owned, they, they stayed in the land and they kept spreading out, right? Judges chapter 2, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. And you know what? To this day, the Lord has not broken his covenant. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 to 6. I'll just read you this real quick. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. I can understand what God is saying here. He is a jealous God. I have a wife. I am a jealous husband. If she decided to go play around... I'd be upset too, <laughs> right? And if you're a wife and your husband decided to go play around, you'd be upset. Uh, even as going back to even just boyfriends and girlfriends or fiancés, you'd be upset if people have made a commitment and then go back on that commitment. You'd be upset. I can understand what God is saying here. And you know, he knew this would happen. He warned them. If you're looking at like the first five books of the Bible, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, he's warning them the whole time. <laughs> he warns them over and over again. Hey, don't go in there. Don't do that. They're going to they're gonna pull you away from me. That's why he gave them the Ten Commandments. Follow these rules. You will not get pulled away. But of course, we're humans. I can't follow the Ten Commandments. I mean, I just can't. Which points to why we need Jesus. That's exactly why we need Jesus. 
Then verse 2, he says, for your part. See, the, God said, I made a covenant with you. Remember the original covenant with Abraham? Abraham was asleep. God made the covenant by himself. <laughs> he said, I'm going to honor both parts because you're going to fall asleep and fail. <laughs> right? But there is still a part we need to do. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. What's our part as believers? As believers, what is our part? Our part is to be obedient. That's it. Simple. Same thing we expect of our children. My son, my, my third, I have a 13-year-old son. He'll be 14 in February. He comes to me like, Dad, what do you want me to do? I just want you to listen to me, man. That's it. <laughs> when I say take out the trash, I mean take out the trash. Very simple, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, but I forgot. But you didn't. See, that's the thing. You say, what do you want me to do? Dad, how come you're upset? Because you didn't listen. You probably heard it from your parents. <laughs> I heard it a lot. <laughs> I'm the oldest. I was the one that, like, uh, I was the trailblazer in my family. <laughs> I was always in trouble. I was always getting into weird problems. And my mom was like, what are you thinking? Juan, what are you thinking? And I'm like, I don't know, nothing, I guess. <laughs> I just do what I feel like doing. Well, that's the problem. <laughs> I'm not thinking. I'm not thinking that there is a way for me to live, and I should abide by that way of living. I wasn't thinking about that. And I say I was a believer. I was. I accepted the Lord when I was seven, seven years old. And when I turned 18, I thought, you know what? My life stinks. I got a crappy dad. He is good for nothing. I got a mom who's always working so hard, and we still have nothing. You know what, God? Your way stinks. I'm out. At 18, I, I, I'm, uh, for, as, if I was back in yours, I peaced out. I was like, I'm ghost. I'm out. I'm not coming back. You know? I, and I said, Lord, I'm gone. Have a good day. I took my Bible and I threw it in the trash. Until I was about 24. And I, and I, I lived my way from 18 to 24. I lived, I did whatever I wanted. And it included whatever I wanted. Drunkenness, sexual immorality, it, all these things. I did it. And you might be thinking, what? And it's not a good testimony. It's not but it's mine. The best testimony is the one of obedience. <laughs> That's the best testimony. But if you don't have that, God can still use it. So what happened at 24? I'm driving my car. <clears throat> it was a piece of junk, <laughs> right? And I'm not driving fast. I was doing 25 miles an hour because I was, I was following this river. It's called the Delaware River. I was on Pen in Pennsylvania. And I was following this river, and this road literally follows the curve of the river the whole way. So I'm just driving my, it was a tiny little car. Um, I mean tiny. It was, it was not, it was, I don't know, not that big, two-seater kind of thing, right? I'm driving this car. I'm doing 25. It's, it's at night. It's lightly raining. And when it lightly rains, that, that oil comes up in the road. Because we use blacktop on the northeast because we have extreme weather. Summers are hot. And winters are cold. Nothing like here. <laughs> Summers are like 40 degrees and winters are like minus 17. You know, it's cold in the Northeast. So I'm driving along. 
I don't remember the time of year, but it, was, it wasn't a freezing time. Obviously, it was just raining. So I'm driving along, hit this curve like this. I went around the curve about 25, and the car started spinning out. And I was like, I didn't panic. I've been in this situation before. That was only, this, was, this would be my fifth written-off car. <laughs> I thought, no problem. Turn the other way. The car spun back around the opposite way. And I thought, see, no problem. And then it started spinning the other way. And I thought, oh, man, now I'm in trouble, <laughs> right? The car wrapped around a telephone pole. So as the car started spinning, it started picking up speed. So I probably hit that pole probably going about 50 miles an hour. And it hit in the driver's side door. In America, the driver's side is on the opposite side of the car. So the telephone pole hit me in the door. And it crushed the car all the way to the center console. <coughs> and it woke me up. <laughs> So I knocked the power out in the village. <laughs> yeah, I know it stinks because I have to pay for that too. <laughs> knocked the power out in the village, right? A guy comes out of his house. He pulls me out of the car through the passenger side door. And he says, son, where were you sitting? And I said, I was driving. And he said, son, you couldn't have been driving. You'd be dead. And that's when I was like, all right, God, what do you want? <laughs> Only one God can keep you alive when you should be dead and it's you. So what do you want? And I knew what he wanted. He just said, I just want you. You said you were my son, and I want you back. Just like I would if my son ran away. I just want my son back. I don't need anything else. That's what God wanted. I was about 24, going to be 25 at the time. But I was just like the Israelites. I broke my covenant, that I, my, my agreement that I made when I was seven years old. And my agreement was just like, God, I believe you. You're gonna, I know you'll take me to heaven. And hey, I need you. Right? I need you. And at 18, I said, God, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> and I lived my life just like the Israelites. Sin completely took over my life. I could not get away from it. Don't believe me? I tried. I tried. Because the last thing I wanted to do was be like my dad. And the more I ran away from being like my dad, the more I became my dad. <laughs> and my mom would tell me all the time, that's just like your father. Great. Fantastic. That would make me more upset. <laughs> you know? Don't talk to me like that. That's how your dad talks to me. Oh, man. You know? And then I would just get angrier. And until I realized that I, I needed to let the Holy Spirit just rule my life, that's when I started not struggling with anger, not struggling with sexual immorality, lust, pornography, all those things, not struggling with like just, you know, that inner city kind of mentality, just like, I'm going to kill this guy, <laughs> you know, right? That's when I stopped. I'm not going to say stopped, but I stopped struggling. There's a difference. There's a difference. You know, sin can pop up. Temptation can come. That's not the problem. The problem is when you give in to the temptation. That's when you're sinning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us the sin in your life, that's normal. That's what everybody does. Everybody has these temptations. But as God says, but I'll provide a way out. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the way out. There's been plenty of times in my life, and it's like late at night, and temptations start to rise. And I'm like, man. And my phone rings. Okay. Do I pick up the phone? Or do I go do what I was going to do? <laughs> and at times I've picked to go do what I want to do. And other times I've picked up the phone. Hello? 
Hey, mom, how you doing? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the Lord. I didn't tell my mom to call when I was struggling the hardest. <laughs> That's the Lord. I mean, the Lord can provide a, a way out any, anyway, all kinds of ways. So it says, for your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Their part was supposed to be obedience. I'm giving you an example of my life when I was disobedient. It took me down a path. If I could go back, I would change it. If I knew then what I knew now, know now, I'd go back and be like, hey, fool, wake up. <laughs> Slap myself in the face. Wake up. What are you doing? Don't do that, man. I've been there. You don't want to go down that way. It's not worth it. No matter, the, the crazy thing about sin is this. It's fun. It looks good. It tastes good. It's pleasurable, right? Sin is like cake. <laughs> you should not eat a lot of cake, right? That's the point. The Satan makes it so that you want it. If sin looked like broccoli, nobody would want it, <laughs> right? Would you want some broccoli? Probably not. <laughs> you know? If sin looked like asparagus and Brussels sprouts and all that stuff, like, I'm, I'm out. I don't want that. Right? But that's not, that, Satan is smart. Right? When I want my kid to do something, I dress it up nice. <laughs> Taking out the trash isn't that bad, you know. Builds strength. Like, oh, does it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get big arms. You get strong. Yeah, you want, yeah. You want to take that out. You want to maintain, you do it all the time. So you maintain that strength. Oh, okay, dad. <laughs> you, know? you put it in a good light, and then people want to do it, right? But if I tell them, hey, taking out the trash is the worst job in the world. It stinks. Sometimes it leaks everywhere, and they got to clean it up. They're like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> exactly, right? So Satan knows how to dress up sin for you. He knows what every single one of you struggles with. He knows how to dress it up for you. He knows how it needs to look like for me, for me to even be tempted. He knows how, what it needs to look like for my wife, Victoria, for her to even be tempted, right? And I've said, I've mentioned anger and, but you know what? The Bible tells us worry, anxiety, right? The Bible tells us those things. The Bible tells us money, the love of money, right? The Bible tells us lots of things, not just anger and lust, pride. Bible tells us pride. And I would dare say that pride is what goes and leads you to all these other sins. You know? I thought I knew better. So it wasn't really, oh, Juan struggles with lust and anger. No, Juan struggles with pride because he thinks he knows better than God, so he's going to go make his own way. That's actually pride. And it, it, it showed itself in anger, through anger and lust, my pride. It was my pride. When I was trying to deal with my, my symptoms of anger and lust, I couldn't fix the problem. What's going on? Then the Holy Spirit showed me, it's pride. You think you know better than God. And I thought, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> and sometimes here's the crazy thing about sin. You don't even know it's there. It can hide. And it's only the Holy Spirit that can point it out. When I, My mom taught me this. She said, Juan, sometimes you need to pray. And I'm like, yeah, mom, I know that. And she's like, no, no, sometimes you need to pray that the Holy Spirit will show you the things you don't see. And I was like, what things I don't see? She's like, like that pride. <laughs> My mom is very straightforward. She's only like this tall. But man, don't mess with her. Don't mess with her. 
small little Spanish lady, you know, she will tell it to you straight. And she still does. I'm 47 now, and she still says. She comes to visit from the state. She's like, Juan? I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, ma. <laughs> Sometimes I get a phone call. Juan? No, I didn't do anything wrong this time, mom. <laughs> She's like, no, I know. You're doing a good job. Really? But I knew it. <laughs> no, I'm joking. My mom is great. My mom is a great lady. Um, but uh, Sin. All the Lord wants from us is obedience. He gives us specific instructions so that we don't even have to do a lot of thinking about it. (laughs) You know? So verse 3, I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in the land. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. When we don't walk with the Lord, the way he's showing us the way to walk, and we decide to make our own way, God's going to say, okay, man, if that's the way you want to go. But it doesn't mean he leaves you. You guys have to understand that. In those quite a number of years that I walked apart from the Lord, he did not leave me. And the reason I know that is because, like I said, I rode off five vehicles. And two of them, I should have died. Well, who else was saving me? (laughs) It wasn't me. It was God. God didn't leave my side, even though I was trying very hard to leave his to push him away. So it says, when the angel of the Lord finished speaking to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. And you might think that's a good thing. So they called the place Bokim, which means weeping, and they offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Hey, it's good to be remorseful. It's good to say, I'm sorry. It's good to apologize. But remorse doesn't get you anything if you don't repent. Okay? If you don't repent, then God doesn't need to hear it. And I'll tell you a story, which doesn't, is not about me. It's actually about my, my, my little brother. My little brother kept doing the same thing. And my mom was on him like, what are you doing? Stop doing that. He'd say, I'm sorry, mom. Then he'd go do it again. What are you doing? I'm sorry, mom. And then the, finally, when he said to my mom, he said, I'm sorry. And she said back to him, he says, save your sorries for when you're ready to change. <laughs> that would be Repentance. Saying sorry obviously wasn't fixing the problem my brother had. It's when he, when he saw he need, uh, his need to repent and change his life. That's when that problem started to get resolved. And he's, he'll, he, he gives us example himself. He goes, that's when all of a sudden it was like, bing. And he's like, right. You're right. And he says, at first he was offended. <laughs> I said, sorry. Why wouldn't you accept my apology? And then he thought about it some more. He says, then I realized she's right. Me saying sorry is not changing anything. And I just keep going to go back to do the same thing. I need to repent. So conclusion, I wrote these out for you. So if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. This is everything you need to know. No, just <laughs> You have to ask yourself this. Do you wholeheartedly, you know what that means? 100% take God at his word. Using the tools he's given us. What tools has he given us? The Bible, prayer, the Holy Spirit. Are you using those tools effectively in your life? That's how you conquer the sinful nature. That's how you conquer the sin in your life. You pray, Lord, help me. Then you read, right? And as you read, you feed the Holy Spirit. And what do you do? You starve the flesh. 
That's what you want to do. You want to starve the bad stuff and feed the good stuff. That's what you want to do. <clears throat> Secondly, are we like that guy from Bethel? Do we come into God's presence like today? And then do we leave having encountered God, possibly just through salvation or just on a weekly basis or whatever it might be, and then we just go back to the old stuff? We go set up that whole city all over again. Yeah, Lord, you did a mighty thing on Sunday morning, but Monday comes and I'm just right back into the old stuff. We don't want to be like that man who went and set up Luz again. A couple of encouraging verses for you. Romans chapter 6, 5 through 7. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. That means you don't answer to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. We need to live in God's grace on a daily basis. We don't need to sit there thinking, I broke commandment number seven. Darn. Oh, and then commandment number three. I didn't really do that one just as well. We'd not, I'm not telling you that you don't have to live by these rules. It's best that you do live by the commandments per se. Okay? But in reality, you need to live in God's grace. He is the one that gives us the strength and the power to accomplish these things, to not lie, to not steal, to not want what everybody else wants, to get up on, on a Sunday morning to go to church, to, to spend day, to not watch garbage movies, to not eat bad things, to not speak a certain way, to get away from people that are actually pulling us down. You know, God, the Holy Spirit, God's grace is what gives us the strength to do these things. Romans 12, 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. That's a dangerous one, <laughs> right? Hey, we're trying to fit in, right? <laughs> but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Folks, what we know here has to make its way to here. And when it makes its way to your heart, then you start to change the way you think. We need to not say, God, you need to help me out. I need, I have this will. I have this thing I need to do. You know, we need to say, God, what do you want me to do? Like I said, I had scholarships to go play university football. I had academic and athletic scholarships. I was going to go to school pretty much free. And I'll tell you what, if you guys have a chance to go to uni, don't go to the States. It is so expensive. When I say I had scholarships, because school would have cost me fifty to sixty thousand a year, and that was a, that was a fairly cheap school, right? But <clears throat> I was saying to God, "I'm I'm going to go play football. You need to do things my way." You know what God did? My dad left. 
I was 17, March of 1994. My dad left in March. I graduated that June. I was going to go to uni in the September. My dad left. He took all our money. He cleaned us out. I couldn't go to uni. Even with my scholarships, I couldn't go. So I ended up going to this tiny little Christian school. And I was like, why am I here? They don't have football. (laughs) They don't have basketball. Actually, they do have basketball, but their team stinks. I'm not even going to play with them. (laughs) They're horrible. You know? Like, every sport I played, they didn't have, or they stunk so bad, I didn't want to be associated. (laughs) Right? But God taught me a lesson there. He said, hey, Juan, it's my will be done, not your will be done. (laughs) I learned a lesson eventually. You know, if it was up to me, I would have been a famous American football player, American football player. I would have been rich, all these things. Yeah, well, none of that's happened. (laughs) None of it. Right? And I'm okay with that. I've learned to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Let your will be done. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Learn to know God's will for you. Well, that only happens if you're submitting and surrendering your life and saying, what do you want me to do, God? Do you want me to go to uni? Okay, I'll go. Do you want me not to go to uni? Okay, I won't go. Do you want me to be a doctor or this or that? You know, my, 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 my goals in life did not include pastor. Nowhere in that list. Nowhere. <laughs> Still just kind of making its way in there. <laughs> You know, but it's because, you know, my goals in life did not include me forming a band with my brothers back in 1998 and then touring part of the world. And I said, we used to tour the U.S. We weren't professional musicians. All I did was play music. I lived in a van, a tour van with my brothers. We toured the U.S. We played loads of shows. We opened up for all kinds of people. We headlined lots of different stadiums and stuff like that. Then we came to England, and we thought, hmm, this is a tiny little place. <laughs> you know, and then people were like, oh, come play. And then we started playing England, and we went to South Africa. We, we played all over, play, all over the place, right? That was never on my list. But I was starting to submit to the Lord and say, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to tell these people through music about me. Uh, what? Why? <laughs> you know, okay, okay, if you want us to, you know, I want you to go here and talk. Okay, why would I go there? That's like a career killer, <laughs> you know? So anyways, submitting to the Lord, Romans 12, 2. So continuing on, a couple more points here. Don't live with your sin. Don't give it a foothold in your life. Don't go to the places that cause you to sin. Don't watch the things that cause you to sin. Don't read them. Don't listen to them. Cut them out. Mortify the flesh means kill it. Right? If you have cancer, what do you want them to do? You want them to cut the whole thing out. Don't leave some of it in there. Right? Well, sin is a cancer. It takes over your life and will kill you. But we have to do our part, right? The Lord said, for your part, there was something practical the Israelites were supposed to do, right? What was it? Be obedient. Follow the commands. What is our part as believers now? to be obedient. But we can do practical things. If your phone causes you to sin, get it away from you. (laughs) Right? Right? Don't don't put it next to your nightstand. (laughs) You know? If watching football on a Sunday afternoon really makes you upset because your team's not very good, and you start yelling and screaming and cursing and all stuff, maybe you shouldn't watch that football game, that football match. (laughs) Right? It's simple things, but they're practical, and they can help us. 
But then we can't put all of our trust in that practical aspect. We couple the practical things that we can do. Lord, I'm going to trust that you're going to help me with this. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this and this, and I need your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, because, I mean, no matter what we do, all we have to do is walk away and turn the TV back on or put the phone back where I had it. <laughs> right? Colossians 3.10, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. God's not looking for us to feel bad about what we've done. He's looking for us to have a changed heart. And he's telling us how to change our heart. He says it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be renewed in the mind by the reading of the word. Be transformed. Spending time in the word is... That's number one. If you don't read your word on a daily basis, you're handicapping yourself. You're thinking, I'm going to go out there, I'm going to do great things for the Lord, but you don't spend any time with him. How the heck would you know what he wants you to do? You know? Don't take it easy in your spiritual life. Uh, that's, that's our downfall. We, we, we work, we make money, we raise our families, Right? Then we look forward to retirement, where we'll, we'll take it easy. We're going to relax a little bit more, maybe play a little bit more golf, maybe go a, a few more holidays, those kinds. Of, that's what we're aiming towards, right? That's all well and good. But in your spiritual life, that's not how it works. Don't look for a spiritual retirement where you start taking it easy. You can tell, oh, I don't need to read my Bible every day. I could read it every other day, or I could do Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, because I go to church on a Sunday. Yeah, that'll work. No, it doesn't work like that. You need to read your word every day until you die, because <laughs> we have bad memories. That's the crazy thing. God did something amazing, right? And then tomorrow, you'll be like, Lord, why is my life so bad? Lord, why aren't you taking care? He's like, I, what? yesterday, I just took care of yesterday, <laughs> Right? I mean, you gave the example yourself, right? You're like, we're fretting. Lord, I don't have the money. I don't have the money. What am I supposed to do? And he's like, I always provide the money. What are you worried about? <laughs> right? God takes care of us, but we forget. And we're remem we have to be reminded by reading the word of God. Reading the word of God. Don't take it easy in your spiritual life. Don't allow sin to creep back in. Keep vigilance like Nehemiah. He stood on the wall and they watched. They worked with this hand and had their weapon in this hand. You can imagine, you got your Bible here and you're working. Yeah, Lord, I'm listening. Right? That's what Nehemiah was doing. He was on top of the wall doing God's will, but maintaining vigilance that they would not get ambushed. Well, that's how sin works. It ambushes you. When you least expect it, sin hits you. A temptation rises up when you least expect it. But if you had been in the word, that temptation would have had no strength to rise up. So we got to keep our defenses up. And that is all I have for you today. So just remember, guys and ladies, gentlemen, guys, girls, sin is creeping around. I mean, Jesus said it to Peter. Sin is knocking at the door. Don't open the door. <laughs> what it boils down to. Don't open the door. Don't let sin put its foot in the door so you can't close it anymore. <laughs> you know, don't give sin a foothold. That's what that means. 
right? So let me pray for you, and then we'll be done. Lord, I just pray for this congregation, for this family of believers. Lord Jesus, I pray for whatever everybody's struggling with. I don't know what they are, Lord, but you do. So I lift them up to you, Father. I lift up for the new friends that I've made to this morning even. Um, I lift them up to you, Father. Whatever our struggles might be, whatever the temptation that might rear its head, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them the desire to read your word, that you would help them to submit and surrender to your Holy Spirit in their life, Lord Jesus. Lord, if even they would look at me as an example, that you can do mighty things, Lord, you did them in Paul. You took a guy who murdered Christians and made him a guy that made Christians, basically. You did it with Peter. You did it, you've done it with all of us, Lord Jesus. You've taken a wretched person, a sinful person, and you've done some mighty things through them. Lord, that you would do that in this church family here. You would take every single person here, no matter how old or young, and you would do mighty things through them because they have submitted to you. Because they said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Lord, I don't want to struggle with this sin anymore. I need your help to get over it, to kill it, to mortify it. Thank you, Lord. Help them not to live with their sin or coexist or just let it take over, Lord Jesus, but to take back what you've given us, Lord Jesus, like the promised land. You've promised us grace and peace, Lord, in our life. Help us to have that, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.